0: Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and hex stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman.
2: I'm Claire Maldarelli. I'm Prabita Saha.
0: Purbita, welcome to the show. Yay! Listeners, Purbita is one of the newest members of Team Popsai. She was previously at Audubon and is now a fantastic senior editor for us. And uh, hopefully we'll be on some future episodes of Weirdest Thing, sharing some weird things. Thank you for coming on. I'm so excited. Awesome. I just actually sent Purbita a link to something about dead birds today. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe birds. future episode fodder. But yeah, this is how the weirdest thing magic happens. We just slack each other weird things and they take us off on flights of fancy. Oh, bird pun! Oh, no. <laughs> Ooh, okay. So on the weirdest thing I learned this week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story that we heard in the course of reading, writing, reporting, et cetera, and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then, once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Claire, what's your tease?
2: Yes, I would like to talk about the most dedicated knuckle cracker of all time. (laughs) (laughs) Not me. Not me either. (laughs) Spoiler.
0: Okay, my fact is about an investigation into something called muslin disease, which was supposedly oh, a no, deadly I fashion trend. Another <laughs> I don't okay, Claire, I mean I don't wanna speak for you because I know your hypochondria can really have a life of its own, but I don't think this is one that's going to convince you that you
2: Have something. You would be surprised, (laughs) but I take on that challenge. Okay.
0: Fingers crossed. But yeah, investigating this so called muslin disease then just led me on a whole journey about the time when the hottest thing you could do as a woman was die. So, (laughs) gosh. um, Maybe still true today, depending on who you ask. Rubito, what's your tease?
3: I'll talk about how one of my favorite comedians taught me more about a secret part of. The female reproductive anatomy. Hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yes. What do we want to start with? Claire, why don't you tell us about some knuckle cracking? Okay. <laughs> Sounds
2: good. I really want to get this off my chest. <clears throat> okay. So everyone's been told by their moms, don't crack your knuckles. I don't know. i I've been told that. Has everyone been (laughs) told that? I don't know if my mom has told me that, but it's something I heard for sure. Okay. Well, it's like. Probably like teachers who were mad at me that I was cracking knuckles. But it's definitely like a mom thing. Sure. I don't know. Okay. Well, growing up in my house, my older sister was like the resident knuckle cracker, (laughs) and she was capable of popping every single joint and every single phalange in both of her hands. (laughs) And it drove my mom insane. And she tried to scare my sister into stopping by telling her all these terrible things that would happen. Mainly that she would get arthritis. Mm -hmm. Now my mom also told us, or my grandma told us, then passed it on to my mom, that if you drink coffee it will stunt your growth so there are a lot of like weird things in the Maldorelli Donovan household that have been told to us I wonder why I'm a hypochondriac but anyway well that definitely would have worked on me I was and still am convinced that I will get every disease on the planet including this new one that Rachel is going to tell us about later but my sister is a very different person she does not fear the arthritis like I do and even if she did the whole idea behind getting arthritis from a lifetime of cracking your knuckles is still a pretty much folklore and completely unfounded, and so is stunting your growth from coffee consumption, in case you were wondering. So these are all the things that I learned about knuckle cracking (laughs) in addition to the fact that I will be telling you about. Knuckle cracking is a very popular pastime Studies estimate that anywhere between twenty-five and fifty-four percent of the US population cracks their knuckles daily. I believe it. I do too. Yeah. Yeah. I think it could be even more than fifty four percent. I don't know who they were surveying. Um (laughs) it as popular as the activity is, it's just as popular for researchers and like doctors to study the potential health effects of Cracking your knuckles. If you put quote unquote knuckle cracking into PubMed, which is like the greatest search engine on the planet, Claire would think so. Where Claire can investigate, like put in any keyword and find 10 new diseases that you have. Correct, correct. Or put in my symptoms and
3: like get to a diagnosis. Is your browser homepage set to PubMed? It is
2: not. It will be soon. That's a great idea. So, if you put knuckle cracking into PubMed, there are over 30 independent studies looking at what happens to your body when you crack your knuckles. Now, I know 30 doesn't sound like a lot, but there are a lot of diseases in the world. So, to devote 30 to knuckle cracking, I think, is a big deal. <laughs> Not just looking at knuckle cracking, but also looking into like what goes into that signature pop. Mm. And so I'll describe that to you and then show how everything is related. So the popping is caused by this liquidy, slightly jelly-like stuff called synovial fluid, which lubricates and surrounds every joint. And when you forcefully bend your fingers in just the right way, this creates this bubble of air within the synovial fluid. And some people think that it's when the bubble bursts that results in this pop. But Rachel told me earlier before this episode or during it or, you know, whenever um, (laughs) she has time to tell me things that apparently is kind of controversial. And some people think it's actually when the bubble is being produced that creates this sound.
0: It's like like when there's a vacuum forming and it's like a vacuum forming. Because it's really it's like a question of like microseconds between the
2: whether it's the forming of the
0: bubble or the bursting of the bubble.
2: Right, right. But the key is that this, you know, the popping happens and the popping sound, I don't know about you all, but I think it's very addicting over the years. I was not as a child, but I too have become addicted to cracking my knuckles and I just really love the sound of when it cracks. And I like how various knuckles have different sounds. I think about this too much, I think. Pravita's <laughs> giving me this really weird look. She's like, who is this coworker,
3: a new coworker pop, of mine?
0: Once you pop, you just can't stop.
3: <laughs> wait, so which is your favorite most? Yeah, that's a great question.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I really like, which I perfected in like college, <laughs> these like little teeny ones. I don't think I could do it now. Well, the but, ones where you have to kind yeah, of like press your fist yeah. to get and, them? And you either do it, wait. Uh Oh, that was a good one. And you either do them like really quickly at once or some people like what Rachel was showing that you do it like all at once and it goes click, 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 click. I'm like, (laughs) I'm so jealous of you. um, But yeah, that is my favorite pop. Do you have a favorite knuckle cracking pop? You don't have to.
3: (laughs) I honestly like to do my big toe. but I don't think that's. I can't. uh, I have never been able to. Yeah, I have strange feet, but I don't think that's an auditory thing. It's more the feeling in my feet like it tremors through my feet once I've done it
2: totally Mm -hmm. totally
0: yeah it is very like it's satisfying which is funny because it's like it's not like a very powerful sensation it does seem like it kind of like like because your body knows something is releasing even though it's such a tiny unimportant release it's like yeah like (laughs) (laughs) I can now move on with my
2: life (laughs) I so agree. But while the pop is super addicting to me, it's the pop that, like, freaks a lot of people out at the same time. Mm. In a lot of the studies of, like, people who are surveyed uh, say, like, why they hate knuckle cracking so much is, like the pop sounds so jarring. Like, one person or a couple of people compared it to scratching on, like, a chalkboard, which I, like, have never... Like, scratching on a chalkboard is very painful to your ears. Cracking your knuckles is just a cool popping sound. I would never (laughs) relate the two, but apparently a lot of people do. So, you know, people hear this popping sound they're like this sounds terrible and so it must be terrible and so I think like this is how my opinion of how all of this started with that it would cause arthritis because it's just such a jarring sound that it must mm. be like terrible for your body to right, create yeah. this sound but if you look at all the observational studies now these just look at like connections and seeing similarities between things that's a really bad description <laughs> of observational studies. <laughs> I'm going to go with it, though. Um, <laughs> one of the largest to date, published in 1990 in the Annals of Rheumatic Diseases, it looked at 300 people, and 74 of them called themselves or identified as habitual knuckle crackers the rates of arthritis between the 75 or 74 rather habitual knuckle crackers and the non-knuckle crackers was exactly the same. And multiple other studies similar to this one, observational ones, have found similar conclusions that there's no relationship to arthritis and cracking knuckles. Now, those are observational studies. So it's really hard to do a study that looks at people who like tell somebody to crack your knuckles and then tell other people not to crack your knuckles and then go live life. Right. Now that brings me to Donald Unger <laughs> Now, Donald Unger, like my sister, like any normal kid, I think, loved to crack his knuckles. But his mom, too, hated it and scared him into thinking it would give him arthritis. So when he reached adulthood, he did the ultimate test and sacrifice. He studied himself, (laughs) and he wrote about his findings in the Journal of Arthritis and Rheumatology in 1998. And I will just read his letter to you because it's quick, concise, and short and amazing. To the editor. Does knuckle cracking lead to arthritis of the fingers? And he writes about himself in the third person, but this was really signed, Donald Unger. During the author's childhood, various renowned authorities, his mother, several aunts, and later his (laughs) mother-in-law, informed him that cracking his knuckles would lead to arthritis of the fingers. To test the accuracy of this hypothesis, the following study was undertaken. For 50 years, the author cracked the knuckles of his left hand at least twice a day, leaving those on the right as a control. Thus, the knuckles on the left were cracked at least 36,500 times, (laughs) while those on the right cracked rarely and spontaneously. At the end of the 50 years, the hands were compared for the presence of arthritis. There was no arthritis in either hand and no apparent differences between the two hands. Knuckle cracking did not lead to arthritis after a 50-year controlled study by the one participant. While a larger group, he admits, would be necessary <laughs> to confirm this result, this preliminary investigation suggests the lack of correlation between knuckle cracking and the development of arthritis of the fingers. And then he adds all this great, like, lit review that he did. A search of the literature revealed only one previous paper on this subject, and the authors came to the same conclusion. This result calls into question whether other parental beliefs... E.g. the importance of eating spinach are also flawed. (laughs) Apparently he hates spinach. I love spinach. I don't know.
3: (laughs) Eat spinach, everyone. Yeah. Yeah. It's
2: good. Like sauteed,
3: you know? Okay.
2: Um, Further investigation is likely warranted. In conclusion, there is no apparent relationship between knuckle cracking and the subsequent development of of the fingers. This study was done entirely on the author's expense, with no grants from any (laughs) governmental or pharmaceutical source, signed Donald L. Unger, MD, Thousand Oaks, California. So if that
3: doesn't convince you, (laughs) I don't know what will. It's amazing. Can you imagine the discipline of just cracking your knuckles on one hand and not the other for so many years? I know.
2: I feel like sometimes I think of myself as like a disciplined person, like... I clean my bathroom once a week on Sunday nights and, like, random stuff like that. And I don't think I could do what Donald did. (laughs) A hero, truly. Sacrificed his life for science. He did. He really did. <laughs> so that's that's mainly what I have to say about knuckle cracking. I did find that, like in all of my other research, I was trying to find other like tidbits to tell you all, but really found that there's no other serious injuries or long term conditions that could result from knuckle cracking. The only thing that I found was in the American Journal of Orthopedics. I couldn't access the the journal. Like I just couldn't find the study. So all I had was this like four sentence preview, and it just says we present two cases. In which acute injuries were suffered while the patients were attempting to crack their knuckles, but they don't say what they are, and I can't find it.
0: So, Ooh, I can totally imagine someone like jamming or even breaking
2: yes, a finger. that's what it, I was looking for. It, it would for. be like
0: a fluke situation where just like their angle of attack
2: mm-hmm. was <laughs> a knuckle cracking <laughs> gone wrong. Yeah,
0: exactly. Now I really want to crack. Every single buckle.
2: Yeah. Um, including my big toe. <laughs> so,
0: so let's take a quick break and then we'll be back after cracking
1: everything. <laughs> okay,
0: we're back. And I'm going to talk about muslin disease. Great. So this started because I was looking at a roundup of deadly fashions because I love to read stuff like that, just like fashion trends that were bad for your body. There's all different examples all over the world. You've got corsets, you've got foot binding, you've got muslin dresses, perhaps. So according to this listicle I read, thin muslin dresses that were popular after the French Revolution may have contributed to a health epidemic. And I decided I must know more. So After the French Revolution, things got very weird in a lot of ways. There were a lot of rules for a while about limiting excess. But then the rich people came back into power and there just wasn't the monarchy anymore. It was just, you know, rich people. So things just got like bizarre. Like people were almost more over the top with their displays of wealth than they had been before the French Revolution and in just, like, doing weird new things with it. Uh, One example is that there were these balls that were only open to the grown children of people who'd been guillotined. And (laughs) they would wear mourning clothes and would allegedly greet each other by, like, rolling their heads really violently. (laughs) No. That part might not be true, but there were definitely balls for relatives of guillotined people where they all, like, dressed in black and were like... Let's party. (laughs) And so there were also some, like, weird fashion trends that were almost, like, almost, like, Dadaist in their level of, like, absurdity with fashion. Like, for example, if we've ever seen the movie A Clockwork Orange and they're wearing a little, like, Blur hats. I don't even know if that's going to have there, but little hats and, like monocles and like walking around with canes. That's like very much reminiscent of fashion trends that actually existed among like well-to-do young French men in these years after the French Revolution when wealth became OK to display again. But people mm-hmm. like didn't know how to do it without being <laughs> weird. And so through some combination of like the glorification of aristocratic women like sitting in plain white shifts waiting to be guillotines, <laughs> and then the simplification of fashion for years due to laws immediately following the war, and just like the absurd subcultures of grieving and traumatized young people among the rich. It became very popular to wear these extremely thin dresses, regardless of the weather. Marie Antoinette, you know, not long before her death, had started wearing these like very like plain white dresses when she was on like her little fake farm. If you've seen the movie about Marie Antoinette, she had a little fake farm where she liked to like the eggs were all pre-cleaned and she'd be like, look, an egg right from a chicken.
3: But she'd still wear her wigs with these.
0: Yes, but they were like chill wigs. (laughs) (laughs) It was they were really like flowy wigs. So, yeah, this is all to say that in kind of like 19th century France, And even elsewhere in Europe, a lot of women were wearing extremely thin dresses, Mm -hmm. which was so different from what had been the fashion before the French Revolution. You know, they had had so many layers and corsets and framework. Petticoats. Yes. Just like wire frames Mm -hmm. of all sorts under your hair, under your skirts. Exactly. Some people still say today, uh, but definitely some people said at the time that women would dampen the cloth of their very simple white dresses to make it even clingier. So it was like the skinny jeans of the 19th century. (laughs) (laughs) And contemporary scholars actually blamed flu and consumption outbreaks on women catching a chill because they were wearing these thin and or damp dresses.
2: Even though that's proven (laughs) to not cause a cold. That is my
0: my next note. I said Claire is (laughs) going to say that being cold doesn't give you a cold and that is true. (laughs) Though if you're really cold when you have like advanced tuberculosis, that's probably not like great for you. You should like wear a sweater. But there's no evidence at all that women typically dampen the cloth. It's probably something that like occasionally maybe courtesans would do in a very like performative way like wet t-shirt contest style (laughs) or it was related to like satirical cartoons they loved satirical cartoons at this time and there are a bunch of them of women in dresses where like the dresses are literally like up their butts so that you can see you know the whole butt And men loved making fun of how see-through these dresses were. So it's possible that jokes about how women looked like they were wearing like clingy wet garments turned into people just saying like, yeah, it's a thing all the young women are doing. And we're really bad historically at picking out satire, especially when it comes to the behavior of young women. So what became more intriguing to me in looking at this was the link between these wispy fashions and shivering young women and the beauty standards of the day, which glorified death. So I was reading this book that was originally published in 1901 about tuberculosis because there was, you know, when I said that doctors would sometimes blame these wispy dresses that may or may not have been dampened for effect for contributing to outbreaks of what they called muslin disease, that was tuberculosis, which at the time was frequently called consumption. But it was before anyone had isolated the bacterium that actually causes TB. So they really didn't actually know how it was transmitted but it was reaching, like, epidemic levels. So it was something that people thought about and talked about a lot, even though they didn't really understand it. So I was reading this book, uh, originally from 1901, about TB, and I came across a passage about Edgar Allan Poe's two consumptive brides, the first being his child bride, Virginia. And apparently at a party in 1842, she was dressed in white and, quote, delicately, morbidly angelic. (laughs) And then she was, like, playing music and she had a hemorrhage in her lungs and coughed up, quote, a wave of blood all over her dress. And he found this like charming. He was like, (laughs) my beautiful, my beautiful, delicate bride. I think she was also like 14 at the time. So yikes. But we now know that tuberculosis is from a contagious bacterium. It existed for thousands of years, infected humans for thousands of years based on archaeological evidence, but it reached epidemic levels due to, like, crowded living and lack of sanitation in cities, but it is really easily transmitted once you have it through coughing and spit. So it very quickly transcended class. So the reason it became so much more common was people being crowded into these really, like, unhygienic cities and slums, but then once it existed in a city, like, anybody it could get it. was anyone's game. Yes, yeah. Exactly. So that's how tuberculosis then came to be considered an actually like upper class disease, because if you just like got sick and died and you were poor, like they were like, ew, gross, you know, whatever. Bye. Um, And it also probably like killed you much quicker because you were working and, you know, didn't have access to as much food and Mm -hmm. warmth, etc., But some doctors actually thought that beauty was like a sign you were more susceptible to TB because they would talk about how girls who grew up being like thin with pale skin and like red lips and bright eyes that they seemed to get TB more than other Mm -hmm. girls. But it was because like those were usually a sign of the low grade fevers you might have for years (laughs) before you started having really dangerous tv symptoms oh. so you would just be kind of like wasting away and have like a low-grade fever and like cough occasionally and they were like yeah all these hot girls keep getting TB. <laughs> all the all the hot girls with rosy cheeks who just like cough prettily so they thought it was probably something first of all that ran in families but also there was this idea that it was actually like the overexcitement of a passionate constitution would cause the disease. So for a while, it was male poets who were really into this idea. Lord Byron, who was oh, featured man, on the show fave. several times. He was on a maybe the first episode. Yeah. Yeah. Or, talking. Claire was talking about how he was the first celebrity diet. He ate potatoes and crackers and vinegar and that was it he really wanted to be pale and thin and beautiful Mm -hmm. he was also recently recently on an episode where he talked about mary shelley because lord byron was a real dog did a lot of women wrong he apparently said how pale i look i should like i think to die of consumption because then the women would all say see that poor byron how interesting he looks in dying oh my god that is such a lord (laughs) byron quote He just wanted to eat potatoes and vinegar until he was nothing. So, yeah, there was this sense that it was like, because, again, you had these bright eyes from the fever and really pale skin, but then like rosy cheeks Mm -hmm. and you were kind of like languid. So it all lent itself to this idea that you were just like... You were like full of fire, but it was so much that it like weakened you.
2: <laughs> See, that's and that, a bad. That was, the study. that was the
0: fire. That was the fever that was, you know, making you full of fire and then weakening <laughs> you. So, yeah, into like the mid 1800s, you saw the rise of what some researchers, uh, a lot of this comes from a book by Carolyn A. Day called Consumptive Chic. They called it Consumptive Chic. And you have like tiny waves, often involving corsets. And also, corsets were great for consumptive chic because it would also make your collarbones stand out more. And so, like, as much of your bones could stand out as possible. Great. Tiny waist, pale skin, which they often, you know, use, like, arsenic to get. So that was not great. Big, bright eyes, which they often use belladonna drops to get. Poisonous, don't do that. (laughs) You have this general sense that beautiful young women from, like, good families are actually, like, more likely to get TB because it's this, like, you're just kind of, like, overcome (laughs) by your gentle nature and, and, like, the passions of the world have just, like, overwhelmed you.
2: Wow, I really hate this. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, same. <laughs> then there was, like, I read one thing that was, like, in the 1850s, a few physicians even thought that the spitting of blood that would happen when you were, you know, having, like, hemorrhages in your lungs was evidence of a displaced form of menstruation. Oh, my God, no. <laughs> it's it's all just one, it's, the body's just one thing. Guys you know? are just terrified of <laughs> menstruation.
3: <laughs> I think men still believe this probably. Yeah. yeah.
0: Absolutely true. So yeah, it it really transferred from that time when Lord Byron was like, we should all be so lucky as to be skinny and <laughs> sad and lethargic to being like really a disease of, of wealthy women and something to be emulated. Once we understood it more, which happened when um,
2: wait, did you say emulated? Like people wanted,
0: right? So people would use arsenic to give themselves poor oh, right, skin, right. and mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. so yeah, it was very much like it, it. Tuberculosis already kind of made people fit the beauty ideals that existed, mm-hmm. but then as more and more people got tuberculosis, and they were really glorified, like a lot of the pre-Raphaelite models had consumption. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A lot of famous courtesans were painted, you know, looking pale and like kind of glistening and then they died of consumption. So that just kind of was like a feedback loop where then people were like, oh, yeah, even more of this like pale and sweaty look,
3: please. Really, all Uh, they needed was like a Sephora and a Pilates. Yeah,
0: absolutely. (laughs) And so once we understood it more, it was 1882 when the microbe was identified. Then, like, once people knew that it was spread by bacteria, it really lost its aristocratic edge. And so then they were like, ew, gross, (laughs) consumption is from germs, So it's only for poor people. So actually, then fashion shifted to highlight curves because they were like, you don't want to die of consumption. Maybe you should eat a little bit more so then, you don't just, like, pass out and die. Dresses were starting to be made shorter so that you wouldn't drag germs inside from the filthy streets, which probably I mean, didn't do much, of, but...
2: I feel like that was, like, that's kind of smart. Yeah, <laughs> right. I it was, like,
0: it's, it's worth a try, <laughs> yeah, you know. Totally. It definitely would have made, like, houses cleaner, if yeah. not less full of TB germs. And then, like, you know, doctors started to tell people to go to, like, warm climates as therapy for mm-hmm. TB. Mm-hmm. And so then, like, sun exposure and light exposure exercise became more popular. So like, it started to become trendy to look healthy and radiant and not glowing in a way that looks like maybe you're about to pass out and die.
2: Wow, what a concept. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I
0: know. It's healthy crazy. Healthy is
2: cool. <laughs> and it's
0: just so interesting because it really does come down to this obsession with women who are close to or actually And it was like a very pervasive thing leading up to and during the Victorian era. And it's really, it's like pretty simple when you think about it. A woman who is near death is as passive Mm -hmm. and delicate as a woman can be. There's this one, there's a lot of poetry and art around this concept. But this one that I came across that I felt like just really said it all was uh, this poem by uh, William Butler Yeats called He wishes his beloved were dead. (laughs) Oh, my God. So I I don't have the whole poem here, but some select quotes. He claims that if his beloved were lying cold and dead, he would lay his hand on her breast and she would murmur tender words to him and that she wouldn't hasten away even though she has the will of wild birds. So it's like you can you can finally control this like wild, passionate woman because she's dead. Um, she was wild
2: and passionate, so he right. gets to, like, have his cake and eat
0: it. Too. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, just um really fascinating glimpse into a topic that will probably inspire several more episodes of Weirdest Thing, because once you talk about, like, why people romanticize corpses so much to the extent that they influence decades of fashion, you know, there's a lot there. And it's still a thing today, obviously. You know, there are periodically, there will be some, like, high fashion editorial shoot that features like a tableau that's clearly the lead up to or aftermath of violence against women. You know, there's like a beautiful high fashion model like laying at the bottom of a set of stairs or having people like menacingly walk up to her. And we still obviously as a a culture are pretty obsessed with the idea of women being imperiled and threatened. But at least now I don't think... Most mainstream culture is obsessed with women literally laying there about to die slowly of consumption. As Edgar Allan Poe said of his second wife with consumption, she uh, had a cough that was killing her by inches and there were almost no inches left. And that was really the most you could hope for, just to be one inch of a woman and hold on (laughs) as long as possible in that state. Murmuring. Um,
3: (laughs) (laughs) So that's it. That's what I got.
2: That's great. <laughs> I would wonder <laughs> a lot like, to think about
3: <laughs> what would be the fashion trend from rich people today. That would, I, I guess, it would dif- differ by country, but <laughs> that would really have that kind of top-down effect on society. Yeah, I can't think of any. That's right
0: I'm like, what? What would it be? I don't Fashion's know. So like stale.
3: gluten-free or something.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true.
0: Yeah, th- there are like a lot of like lifestyle trends that have that kind of effect. I mean, I guess, like, you have high heels and skinny jeans and other things where it's, like, it just becomes the norm that this very uncomfortable thing is what's popular. And so then that affects, like, the way we move and the way we want other clothes to fit and the kinds of activities we want to participate in. But, yeah, I don't know. Certainly nothing to this extent. Luckily, we are no longer such a slave to fashion, but still. we probably still have a long way to go. <laughs> yeah.
3: I did get an email from Levi's about their latest high-waisted jeans, which are called ribcage jeans. Ouch. just That's like not high-waisted. <laughs> How high can you go? Above your waist. How much higher can they go?
0: <laughs> well, right, because like originally high-waisted jeans were us like rebelling against low-cut jeans that are like... You know, at least for most bodies, past pubescence, like just like not going to be flattering, not going to be comfortable. They cut you right where you don't want jeans to cut into when you sit. And, you know, for a while, high-waisted jeans, it was like I remember a bunch of like hot takes from dudes being like, girls, your high-waisted jeans look dumb. And I was like, <laughs> I don't care. Also, <laughs> they don't. They look great. But now it's like if you if, you, if the high-waisted jeans literally go up like to your under boob. Then that's just a corset. That is, <laughs> yeah. I, was, I did actually, I tried like an Instagram ad shaper for like, you know, wearing under like formal wear. And it was very much like, you know, Spanx, like they just squeeze you all like uniformly. And it's really not meant for like highlighting curves, which is totally true. They just kind of like squish your thigh into your butt. And this was like, you know, this is cut and designed so that it actually like only cinches you in where you want it to. And it works really well, but I put it on. I was like, this is a girdle. This is just literally a girdle. And yes, it works very well. But, like, there's a reason why girdles became unpopular. It's because they're f***ing uncomfortable. I guess we haven't gotten to a point where we can have something as relatively comfortable as a pair of Spanx that is as effective as a girdle. Mm -hmm. And that's, I guess that's the, the white whale. So totally. We'll watch this space. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with one more fact. Okay, we're back. And, Pramita, it is time for your first sweetest Thing fact.
3: Well, mine goes back a few months ago to when I went to see a stand-up show by Hannah Gadsby of... Nanette fame, if anyone has seen that Netflix special. Excellent. So, Hannah Gadsby is from Australia. She was touring the US for her newest stand up routine, which is fantastic and I think will also be streamed pretty soon. So, the name of the show was called Douglas, which was named after her dog. Makes sense. (laughs) But then she goes down this rabbit hole of talking about historic gynecology and it stems from Douglas. She wanted to talk about this very little known part of the female anatomy which is called the pouch of Douglas and it kind of floats in your body between Claire or Rachel do either of you know I've about her? I was her? just like okay. like and playing I'm it
2: in my head I'm like fascinated. fascinated.
3: So if you're listening from home and also didn't know don't feel bad. Uh, <laughs> it's this tiny little space that floats between your rectum and your vagina and Hannah Gadsby basically described it as you know when you have a piece of luggage or a suitcase and there's that one zipper that you always unzip and it doesn't actually open the suitcase it just like makes it a little <laughs> bit I know colder. exactly
0: what zipper that is. That,
3: that was her analogy I which is perfect but medically it's called the recto uterine pouch very sexy It's also called the Patch of Douglas, which I'll get into, or a Um, (laughs) cul-de-sac. Just a nice
0: suburban. Yeah, very,
3: (laughs) very suburban. You could see, like, your family practitioner maybe using that analogy on you or something. So the reason why it's named after a man, even though it only exists in female bodies, is – It goes back to Mary Toft, which I know is one of Rachel's icons. She actually dressed up as her for Halloween this year. Yes, at the live show. So this is back in 1700s England. And James Douglas, he was a Scottish physician and a midwife, which there were a lot of male midwives at this time. So that was becoming quite the trend. And that has its own fascinating story because part of it. Is that forceps came into play Mm. in birthing techniques and only male physicians were using these forceps and kind of took over the midwife space Mm -hmm. uh, to deliver babies. So anyway, James Douglas was one of these midwives. Some documents call him a feminist midwife because he opened a clinic where underprivileged women could actually have a safe space to give birth. Mm -hmm. Sounds great. He also did public dissections of dead female cadavers Mm -hmm. where he would invite people, mostly rich people, to come to his house and watch him look at different parts of of female parts. So fun stuff. He was also a (laughs) physician extraordinary to Queen Caroline. I don't know what that title means, (laughs) but it sounds wonderful, I guess. So the Mary Toft connection, basically Mary Toft. Have you talked about her on the show before? Yeah.
0: Yeah. We had an episode about her. I'm just the brief, briefest version is that she pretended she was giving birth to rabbits repeatedly by shoving chunks of dead rabbit and other animals into her softened cervix. And she fooled. Many doctors for quite a time, but then it was eventually found out because they isolated her, and people were found trying to sneak her rabbits, so <laughs> she
3: can, so I like love it like Donald Unger, the knuckle cracker, a true dedicated individual mm-hmm. to swaying scientific mm-hmm. opinion I like um, it. so James Douglas was one of the skeptics when mm-hmm. it came to Mary Toft, and eventually it did come out that this was a giant hoax, and she went to prison for it. And this only grew James Douglas's career because he was one of the smart, quote unquote, few who uh, was like, this is physically impossible. (laughs) So during these many public dissections, James Douglas, you know, he got more into kind of mapping the uterine area in women. And one of the Spots He found is this pouch of Douglas. So essentially, there's no real way to describe it. It's like this region of negative space um, (laughs) (laughs) where it just allows your organs. It's not an organ itself because it doesn't really have a specific function. But it allows your other organs to kind of slide by and expand. It's just there to like hold everything else (laughs) and like, yeah, yeah. It's like it's like that. um, I don't want to say a friend with benefits, but like (laughs) that one friend who you just like keep on going back to when you when you just need like a shoulder. Yeah, totally. that's like the a, back, back a back burner. Is. Yeah, exactly. Back burner friend. I've seen in some medical journals as it being described as an infinitesimal space, which I feel is hyperbolic <laughs> because right. we are not infinitesimal on our insides, no matter what you think about women. But yeah, so it provides a lot of cushion. It kind of supports your bladder, you know, when mm. when you're really, you know, trying to go for days without being, I guess. <laughs> yes. Don't recommend that. <laughs> yeah. So the there isn't a ton of medical research on it just because it seems like doctors don't quite know what to do with the pouch of Douglas. But in recent times, there have been more gynecologists and surgeons looking into this space because it seems to be a good indicator of really serious gynecological or reproductive issues. Mm. For, so for example, like they can check it for lesions that can affect other parts of the uterine area. It can be the way that your parts like slide against it. I don't know exactly the mechanism, but by looking at that motion within the pouch of Douglas, doctors might be able to detect if you'll get endometriosis later in life. And endometriosis is, you know, an extremely painful condition that affects a ton of women where just like when you're having your period and your uterine lining sheds every month, instead your uterine lining grows on like other parts like your intestines Mm -hmm. and other tubes, it also tries to shed has nowhere to go so then you just have a ton of dead tissue up in there and that buildup is you know yeah. painful, deadly, whatnot. So there needs to be like a lot more investigation into this mm-hmm. but it's possible that the patch of Douglas can help with mm-hmm. some preventative measures also with ectopic pregnancies. sometimes there are like some really terrible side effects that can also show up in this space. So it's still a mystery but i just love this idea that we have this little pouch inside ourselves <laughs> and you know it's maybe we're all marsupials but we just <laughs> totally. don't show it on the outside yeah i don't know how does it how does it feel to know that you just have this this new part it's really fascinating that it is like defined by its
2: negative space that's super interesting yeah mm-hmm. and i wonder if it will actually like if it does well, I guess it doesn't have any functions, so I guess it can never be an organ
3: eventually. But I think it's always cool when you hear about like new organ. I'm like, "Oh man." Yeah. <laughs> Especially cuz their bodies seem to be to have evolved to be so efficient. Like everything mm-hmm. is right. packed in there and yeah. everything has to have a use. Has to have a reason. Yeah.
2: Or a use but for maybe it. Maybe not. I yeah. bet there is more uses for the pouch of Douglas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cuz like why else would it be there, right? Yeah. So, what was that other like organ recently it was like the mesentery or something oh I forget yeah, what it was, but it was the like, GI system. yeah I this one. that like sits on the outside of your intestines and like holds your intestines in <laughs> like a nice hug like a nice <laughs> hug <laughs> yeah like <laughs> an actual suitcase yeah <laughs> for your intestines
0: well and there's like you know for years everyone was like oh the appendix is a vestigial organ like it doesn't do anything And now there's a bunch of research on, like, well, maybe actually there's, like, some important microbiome stuff going on in Mm -hmm. there, which sucks because mine is gone.
2: Oh, really? Yeah.
0: And, I mean, it's good that it's gone because I had appendicitis, so Mm -hmm. it would have sucked to keep it in there. But at the time, everyone was like, don't even worry. It doesn't even do a darn thing. You're better off without it. Yeah. Well, and actually now there's a lot more research into how often you can avoid appendectomies by yeah, just using antibiotics mm-hmm. and so i'm like what if like 10 years from now
2: everyone's like yeah can you believe we used to just like lop those off whenever they were infected right <laughs> so so much we still don't know about the human body yeah
3: mm-hmm. yeah so um shout out to hannah gadsby for uh, teaching me something that my gynecologist never taught me i'm definitely gonna fire her but I, <laughs> <laughs> I
2: love it i love it I would do the same. <laughs> so what was the weirdest thing we learned this week? Um, oh, this is hard. They're all such good yeah, ones. it was a good week. Yeah. I mean, I love learning about a new disease and a new organ. But I don't think I have tuberculosis, luckily. Um,
0: so- <laughs> I'm really glad. Once I said that, I was like... Because I knew that you wouldn't think you had muslin disease right? because you're not walking around in, like, wet
2: dresses. Yeah.
0: But then I was like, oh, no, but what if she thinks she has tuberculosis? No, I think... So I'm glad you don't. <laughs> yeah.
2: I'm pretty sure. I'm confident.
0: <laughs> I think it may be a tie week. I think we learned three really interesting things about bodies.
2: Yeah. Dead bodies, live a... bodies. Right. I was going to say, I was like, I don't think I have TB. So maybe I think that... This new organ I might have is also cool. Or not organ, but, you know, dead
3: space. Dead space. Infantesimal space. (laughs) Infantesimal (laughs) space. I really, I mean, the knuckles is just so relatable, obviously. And to think that we do these things without actually knowing how they affect us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely So that's amazing. But, you know, that muslin yarn that you spun was just... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) it went in so many directions a, i did just not a nice expect victorian necrophilia tale yeah and you got in your lord byron references which i'm yeah it's truly an all that was like the same. last thing i found and i was like yes, <laughs> <laughs> i
2: love it
0: <laughs> great well a great week for all of us you want me to the Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other weirdos find the show. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popside.threadless.com. Our show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, and our editors, Jess Bodie and Jason Letterman. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest under.
1: in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
3: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.